0: Joshua twenty four fourteen. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served, and serve the Lord. First Samuel twelve twenty four. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. Isaiah 8.13 It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Our lives Would take on a radically different character if we learned to fear the Lord. Now understand, there is a kind of fear that is like slavery, and there is a kind of fear that is glorious liberty. A slavish kind of a fear is destructive, but a holy fear of God, the knowledge of how great God is, and how infinite his rights are, and how urgently necessary and absolutely mandatory it is that we do his bidding. You see, part of what has happened to us in America is that we have become so focused on ourselves that we have forgotten who we really are. That is true not only of individuals, it's true of the nation itself. I've had prominent pastors tell me, Mr. Roberts, we know you mean well and you're sincere, but you're all confused. Christianity has nothing to do with the nation. Christianity is individual. Garbage. Absolute garbage. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Christianity is for the nation. And for many, many, many years, we were a nation that feared God. You have only to read the early documents of our nation, the speeches of our presidents and our other leaders to know that they lived in fear of God. Now even some of them who gave no evidence of being truly acquainted with Jesus Christ, understood the necessity of the fear of God. And many of them wrote and said, America will go down if ever she elects officials who do not fear the Lord. And that is precisely what has happened to us. But let me just give you a tiny sampling from these other sheets. The fear of God affects prices. You heard me right, prices, P-R-I-C-E-S. What happens when in a time of emergency, a commodity that is an essential becomes scarce? Something that may have been selling for 35 cents is suddenly priced at $5.50. The fear of God deals with greed. The fear of God brings the salvation of God nearer. Surely, his salvation is near to those who fear him. Psalm 85, 9. Well, you dear folk are so kind and attentive that if I happen to run a little overtime, I doubt that most of you would criticize me. But I'm going to be very candid. I'm tired. (laughs) And so I'm not going to give you anywhere near awe. I would like to but just enough to urge you, get back to the Bible. Gain for yourself a fear of God. Take again the three great issues I've already mentioned. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Number two, the fear of God is, is the only true preservative against personal evil. Number three, the fear of God is the only guarantee of social justice. That's why the Bible is so firm in making it absolute that we must not allow judges who do not fear the Lord. But now, you understand why I'm focusing on this. I told you There are three powerful prods in these verses 17 to 21. And the first of these prods is the fear of God. And uh, I'm simply urging you to come back to the Word of God with all its power and authority. And let the whole of your life be affected. Now, what things do we fear God concerning? Let me just give you a short list. I'll make it very personal if you don't object. I fear God, lest, after all these years of preaching to others, I should fail to keep the word of God myself what an incredibly awful thing more than 65 years of pleading with others to turn to Christ and then I abandon these things myself now you say oh that's not likely to happen May I remind you of someone much older than myself? Someone vastly more useful than me? Someone well known who blew it in the end? Have you read Numbers chapter 20 recently? Do you remember that time when the Israelites were murmuring against God and Moses over the lack of water, and how they were giving Moses a truly hard time? And do you remember that he, that is Moses and Aaron, had an incredible experience with God in which God appeared to them and they fell upon their faces and they had an experience that some of us would gladly give both arms for. The newness of God. But Moses lost his temper And when God said to him, Speak to the rock, he took his rod and he gave that rock a mighty wallop. Now the water came out, even though Moses grossly disobeyed the Lord. But the Lord then said to him, Because You did not maintain my holiness, my glory, before the people. You have forced me to maintain it at your expense. Now, what did that mean? Do you remember this passage? Did you ever read it? Yeah, I'm glad you did. Don't ever forget it. Each of you who is a believer, just like me, are called upon to carry God's glory. Before the people, all that the world knows about our precious Savior is what they see in us. Moses, who had with great diligence and faithfulness carried the glory of God, lost his temper, walloped the rock with a rod, and was told by God, go up in the mountain, look across to the land of promise, and lie down and die. Did God call Moses to lead the people partway to the land of promise? Moses never finished his life work because for a brief moment he failed to fear God. I live in continual realization that at any moment I could do something as grievous and so could you. Then, add to that, over the years, many, by the grace of God, who have heard me speak of Jesus, loved him through the power of the Word and the Spirit, touching their lives through me. Suppose that dear brother, right here in the front, our brother Jordan, were forced to send out a communication to others. Mr. Roberts, Has fallen. You must not trust him. He has been unfaithful to the Lord. Oh, dear friends, when I think of those who would be injured, I say I must go on in the fear of God. I must not let anything happen that will turn me aside from the path. Some of you at one time were much more diligent than you are now. You have got to come back to that point where the fear of the Lord is constantly prodding you to gird up the loins of your mind to be sober, and to obey the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me move quickly to the second of these issues. Peter mentions what it cost our Savior to provide this salvation. I'll go back to the text and to You've got it in front of you, and let's uh, read it again and let it sink deeply into our hearts. Verse 18, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, bought with the precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We must never forget What it cost our Savior to secure our pardon. Day after day, we must come back to the cross, to the suffering, to the pain our dear Savior endured, and say, Christ paid far too great a price For me to become lazy or careless or indifferent. The bulk of the American church acts as if nothing important ever happened. But we know that the most incredible thing in all the universe directly affecting us happened. The innocent, the unblemished, The pure Lamb of God died in our place on a cross. And we must honor him and serve him with love and loyalty. Now, although there is great motivating power in fear, and we must never lose track of it, I find personally, I believe you too, also find that the love of Christ is greater in its value for stirring us up and moving us onward for the glory of Christ. But for a moment, I'd like to speak to some of you who have grown cold and careless and you've allowed yourself to forget That great price Christ paid for you. Remember when the prodigal son returned home? It is said he recovered his senses. I'd like to urge you to recover your senses. And remember again the price Christ paid. And never forget it. And pour out every ounce of strength. And utilize every speck of giftedness. And do everything in your power from now on to say, I love you, Lord! And then the third of these incredible prods that God has given to help us. Notice now this last portion. Verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world that has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The more you know about the incredible salvation that Christ provided, the greater your incentive to serve him with joy Love and diligence. Let's take these last few minutes tonight to think about the magnitude of the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. Do you suppose that after Adam fell, God said, oh, my, my plans are messed up. Now I've got to think of something else to do to try and straighten things out no from before the foundation of the earth God had in mind the plan of salvation now do you have an imagination I know the children do I'm going to ask my friends here on the second row will will you will you kind of in your mind imagine an umbrella you know what an umbrella is Will you imagine a really big umbrella? If I say the spokes of an umbrella, do you know what I mean? You know, an an umbrella has ribs. I want you to imagine an umbrella with 10 ribs. That means 20 points. Obviously, each rib has two points. Let's think about Salvation as an umbrella. You see, there's an awful lot of air that we're prone to fall into because we really haven't gotten a hold of the magnitude of salvation. Did you ever use these words as if they were synonyms? Regeneration. Justification. Justification conversion, salvation. Well, if you did, thank God it's not too late to ask his pardon and to get things right. God arranged before the earth was made an incredible salvation. I'm not much of a book salesman, but I have written a book called Salvation in Full Color. And it deals with the 20 words that relate to salvation. But now, just to make it easy, and I trust delightful, will you put a name on that umbrella that you've got in your mind. Put the name salvation on that umbrella. Can you do that? You've already done it, I guess. I guess. So we're thinking now of this umbrella term, salvation. I'll not give you all of the words that come under that, but let me give you quickly a list. Uh, because I'm an old man and sometimes forgetful, I wrote him down just to be on the safe side. The holiness of God, original sin and depravity, redemption, regeneration, repentance, faith, justification, adoption, conversion. Sanctification. Redemption. Oh, you say you already use that word. Oh, did I? Thank you for remembering. It has to be used twice in this list. Let me just just paint in the little on the picture that I've asked you to imagine. Salvation, that's the name of the umbrella term. Think about original sin. Every one of us born a sinner. Our real problem is not that we sin, but that we are sinners. When a person comes to repentance, it is not enough to repent of the fact that they have sinned, they must repent of the fact that they are a sinner. Or in other words, the reason we sin is because we are sinners. We were born that way. Adam, the head of our race, made it such that every one of us born of Adam is born a sinner. And as sinners... We are utterly depraved. And you say, I heard that term. I don't even know what it means. Well, it's all right. I'm sure not going to give you a beating if you don't know what it means. I'll show you what it means. You see that pillar that comes down over there in the front? Let's say that's the goal that this old man has. I've got to go straight to that pillar. Oh, I can do that all right. Sure enough, I can go right at that pillar. Why, I won't have any real difficult... uh, uh, I won't have any problem getting there. Oh, here I go now. It's like I'm drunk. Depravity means you cannot walk in a straight line to where you're supposed to go. Every one of us is without the ability to walk in a straight line toward God. We go here. We go there. We go backward. We go forward. We go in circles. But we never walk in a straight line because we're depraved. We're under the governance of original sin. And depravity demonstrates our inability. Furthermore, when we were born, we were not born as children of God. My dear mother and my wonderful father, were unsaved as Satan himself when I was born. But in the mercy of God, when I was eight years of age, God laid hold of my parents. And they were truly transformed by Christ. And all the rest of their days... Everybody that knew them knew that Christ had done a wonderful work of grace. Now, instead of having been born before my parents became Christians, suppose I had been born afterward. Then would that have meant that I was a child of God? No, no. Not one of us was born as a child of God. God, we're not even eligible to be children of God. We have a father, the devil, and before we can become children of God, it was necessary that Christ be our Redeemer. Now, this isn't a very good row here, possibly you, but uh, certainly not the rest for what I'm about to say. But uh, uh, let me take my friends, the couples back here. Did you ever collect trading stamps? Yes. yes, of course. When I was a small boy, one of my duties was to lick the back of the trading stamps and to paste them in the stamp. And oh, do I remember the day when we had three and a half books of SH Green trading stamps. And because I had done the licking and the pasting, my parents said, you get to go with us to the Redemption Center. And we came home with an electric toaster. The first one my eyes ever saw. And we sat around that night eating toast (laughs) as if it were chocolate cake and ice cream. (laughs) The Redemption Center. Christ is the Redeemer. Christ purchased us away from our father, the devil. He made us eligible for adoption into his forever family. Then we've heard the word regeneration. And we understand, I hope, that God takes his word and through the power of the Holy Spirit he quickens that word in a person and suddenly one who has been blind and deaf and unable to understand is suddenly capable of realizing God loves me! Can you imagine Jesus died in my place. Wow! We're quickened. We're made alive by the Holy Spirit. And then, when we hear the word of God, we're able to act upon the two precious gifts that God gives the gifts of repentance and faith. And those of us who have been stumbling and making a mock of life and haven't understood anything correctly, and had no power whatsoever over sin, suddenly understand that the Redeemer has liberated us from our Father the Devil, and the Holy Spirit and the Word have quickened us, and we have been given repentance and faith. And we lay hold of those gifts and exercise them. And suddenly... We are justified. We are made just as if we had not sinned. God credits the work of Christ to our account. Our debt of sin is paid in full. If you ever had a mortgage and finally you paid it off, And at the bank they took that big rubber stamp and plunged it down on the page that said, paid in full. Well, that's wonderful, but that doesn't begin to compare with the glorious sense that my debt of sin is fully paid. And then, when justified, God, in his sweet And precious grace adopts us into his family and places us as sons and daughters in his holy family. And we can rightly say, Father, my Father. Now, most of that is inward. Most of it is invisible to others, But after being regenerated, after repentance and faith, after being justified and adopted into the family of God, outward things began to change. Do you ever keep flowers around your place? Do you love them? Maybe you put a vase of buds on the table. And they're lovely. But in the morning, when you go into the kitchen, those buds have emerged as glorious flowers. That's what conversion is. That inner work that God has been doing suddenly takes on an outer significance. Our lives not only are transformed within, but transformed without. Then we discover that the same Savior who paid the price of all our sins and justified us and adopted us and enabled conversion to occur is also our holiness. And we then embrace him, Christ the sanctifier. And day by day we walk in faith believing that Christ is our holiness. And then finally, that word redemption appears a second time. Now, the first time it occurs, we often sing about, you know this song, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed by his infinite mercy, his child and forever I am. But, that word appears again. Now, I have said to you that to be justified, you must believe. And to be sanctified, you must believe. Now, in order to experience this second redemption, what must you do? Now, this second redemption is Glorification. You know we describe the presence of God, his eternal presence, heaven itself as the glory. And when we practice life and are ushered into the presence of our magnificent God and Savior, we're glorified. If I have to believe to be justified, And I have to believe to be sanctified. What do I have to do to be glorified? Drop dead. (laughs) Truly, that's all it is. We are his own beloved sons and daughters. And his glory becomes our glory. Now, here's the point. That ought to have an impact. I've just kind of touched the fringes of what Christ has done. Just sort of grabbed a little at that plan of salvation God worked out before the earth was ever formed. Can you imagine any more powerful incentive to obey these commands in First Peter chapter 1? than the glorious salvation that Jesus Christ has arranged for us. And may I ask you, have you been responding appropriately? As you know, my home is in the north. This has been a very mild winter, but we've had some dreadful winters. And there was a winter when it seemed to snow every day or two for months on end. Finally, when April came around, the weather seemed to clear. Most of the snow melted, and we thought, oh, at last, spring has come. But on the 10th of April, when I arose in the morning early, it was snowing hard. By the time I left from my office, there were already two or three inches on the ground. By the time I came home that night, there were about ten inches of snow that had fallen. All the way home from my office, I was thinking, oh, when I get home, i got to shovel that mess. But when I pulled around the corner, I saw my two young people in the driveway, and they had shoveled it, and they were standing there with kind of a pleasure look on their faces, leaning on their shovels. So I pulled in to the drive, got out, and said, oh, thank you, I was dreading having to shovel the snow. Oh, I'm so grateful you've done that. Now, if you'll step out of the way, I'll pull in to the garage. But it was a late snow and a wet snow and a very slippery snow, and I couldn't get any traction to get moving up the slight grade to the garage. So I backed up, and I backed right into a deep ditch I got out and I said to the kids, did you see me backing into the ditch? Yes, Dad. Why didn't you tell me? But, Dad, you knew where the ditch was. (laughs) Yes, I knew where the ditch was. I didn't know where I was. (laughs) Now, listen. We were out there more than two hours struggling to get that heavy van out of the ditch. Neighbors came from every direction. (laughs) Maggie, seeing what was going on, cooked up a great pot of hot chocolate. And we had a lovely time with our neighbors and eventually got the van into the garage. But Let me change the picture slightly. Suppose I had been in Minneapolis that day. Suppose I was on my way home. And suppose coming down one of those treacherous roads, I had actually slid through the guardrail, plunged down a steep embankment, and landed head first, nose first, of the vehicle in the river and the water immediately to come, and it was working its way up, and I was nearly frozen to death. And just before the waters covered my head, a man and a wife driving on the highway saw the lights of my vehicle in the river And he stopped and said, Honey, you go into town and get help. I must go down and see what I can do. And just as the waters were to envelop me, he broke through the rear window, got in there, and lifted me out at the last moment. When my neighbors helped, I owed them thanks. And I gladly gave it. But if that man had rescued my life, thanks would have been inadequate. And Christ didn't die for you when you were in a ditch. He died for you when you had no hope at all. And I've asked have you made a decent response to Christ? Will you be making an appropriate response? Every day for the rest of your life. My understanding of propriety is a life for a life. He gave his life for me. I gladly give my life to him. Have you? And if not, thank God, it's not too late. What a wonderful thing to act responsibly and to be so deeply grateful to God, aware of the need to fear him, aware of the magnitude of his suffering, aware of the grandeur of his salvation, that you say, here I am, now and forever, yours and yours only. And then every day, for the rest of your life, you prove you meant it.
1: For this commandment which I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us? And get it for us and make us hear it so that we may observe it. But the word is very near you. In your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. See, I've set before you today life and prosperity. And death and adversity. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And that the Lord your God may bless you. In the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away. And you will not obey. But are drawn away and worship other gods. And serve them. I declare to you today. That you shall surely. Perish. You will not prolong your days. In the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth. To witness against you. Today. That I have set before you. Life and death. The blessing and the curse. So choose life. Life. In order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land. That the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Father, it's abundantly clear that on the day of judgment, there's not a person here, young or old, that's going to be able to say in a justified way, Your word was too far from me. It was way on the other side of the sea, and I. Couldn't find anybody to bring it so that I could hear it and obey it. Or it was way up in heaven and there was no way that someone could go and grab it and return it to me. Everybody here is now more accountable than we already were. And we were already entirely responsible to you for every moral choice we had ever made. And we were going to stand before the judge of the universe as the passage so plainly said but it's as if you've exponentially increased the responsibility that we already had before you. Knowing that, we all feel our frailty. We fear ourselves, we fear The kind of people we know that we've been when we've walked out of doors in meetings something like this for many of us on other occasions only to return to that old manner of life. But surely a God like you who has sent a Redeemer like Christ and provided a salvation so glorious and imperishable That you signed it in his own death blood and indwelt your people by your own precious spirit. Surely a God like you who spoke into existence all the cosmos and sustains it by the word of your power and rescues by your righteous right arm. The God who's already declared the end from the beginning and explained in certain detail how you're going to wrap up the end of all things. Surely a God like you who's going to sustain not only for time but for eternity a people for your own possession who are going to praise you in your manifest presence for the glory of your grace. Surely a God like you can take a little life like ours and turn it into the kind of thing that a true Christian ought to be. So we lay ourselves exposed in your presence right on top of the altar climbing up there willingly as a living sacrifice to say that we want our worship not to be a moment in time on a Saturday evening tucked away in an obscure place in West Memphis, Arkansas. But we want the evidence that we've met with the King of Glory on this night in this place Under this word, to be manifested in the way we live tomorrow morning and two years from now and until our dying day. Give us yourself, O God. We pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're concerned about the condition of your spiritual whereabouts, you ought not leave without engaging with somebody who knows and loves the Lord. About how you too may come to favorable terms with God. Put simply, if you're not a Christian, why will you perish? When there's such a great salvation provided for you. If your conscience is bothered. And you cannot leave. Without having that matter settled. There are lots of people who would have no greater joy. Than talking with you as long as it requires. To show this from the scriptures. How you can be introduced to the king of heaven. There'll be services here tomorrow morning at this church where the gospel will be proclaimed according to the word of God. There'll be godly people here who would love to know you and pray for you and walk with you. The same will be gathered if you're from the other side of the river over in downtown Memphis. And a portion of these people are from that church. If you live in that area. Seek him. Seek him. Seek him seek Him.